Father, we thank you that your reign is good news because where you reign, there is freedom, there is peace, there is healing, there is joy, there is gratitude, there is strength. Father, everybody here tonight that you have drawn to this place is walking in with any number of things tied around their backs and on their shoulders. Maybe it's guilt over something they did this week. Maybe it's just plain old being tired. I know everybody walked in here cold. But now we're here. You've gathered us in the warmth of this sanctuary around your word. So I pray, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us now. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to the church you've gathered. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. And thank you, everybody, for joining us tonight at Epiphany. I'm glad you were able to brave the cold and get outside. Uh, so, of course, in case you haven't been with us before, uh, we are going through the book of Revelation, and it is appropriately titled by me, uh, Things Get Weird, because there is, of course, uh, with the book of Revelation, a real, well, I think typically amongst preachers, a real fear to talk about it, a real hesitation to go over it, because it is, frankly, filled with strange imagery and symbolism, and and so it makes it hard to maybe track with it on top of that uh, the kinds of uh, stuff that Revelation covers is not always fun to talk about. It's, it's more enjoyable for me to stand up here and tell you about easy things and fun things and lighthearted things. And this book doesn't always deliver that. It delivers some hard realities for us. Uh, when we last left off our study in Revelation last week, we sort of entered, I guess what you'd call an interlude period in the midst of the beginning of the end of the world. Let me say that again. It's in the midst of the beginning of the end. There's a lot of the beginning of the end type stuff here. Uh, the reason for the interlude was because John, the writer of Revelation, and the one who had seen these various visions, had to answer a very important question for his readers and, by extension, for us. Namely, the question was, who could stand in the midst of all the difficulties that the world is facing? Who can endure such troubles? And what we learned is that those who will be able to endure through the times of tribulation that are described for us in this book would be those whom God has sealed by placing his name on them. When we walk through the first series of judgments recorded for us in chapter 6, we saw six seals broken. These seals, each of them revealed that before the end there would be, as Jesus prophesied in Matthew's gospel, uh, wars and rumors of wars with, which results in death and famine and pestilence. Today, as we will see the seventh seal broken, we are ushered then into a new series of seven judgments known as the seven trumpets. So we read in verse 1 and 2, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, 
The Lamb, of course, is Jesus in this book. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And I'm going to stop there just for a second. All throughout Scripture, there is a ton of significance and meaning given to trumpets. They're everywhere you look, especially in the worship and life of, of God's people. Uh, in Exodus 19, when the Lord descends to Mount Sinai to meet Moses and Aaron, a trumpet blasts as he enters. Trumpets were used to summon the, the people to worship in Numbers chapter 10. The trumpet was used to announce the coronation of a new king. And of course, uh, a great trumpet will be used to announce to the world the second coming of the true king, Jesus Christ. All these things are throughout scripture. But probably the most famous story involving trumpets is found in Joshua chapter 6. There the Israelites were commanded to take siege of a city named Jericho. If you grew up in Sunday school, you probably heard this story. How did they go about doing it? Well, for six days, each day, the Israelite army would march around the city walls once a day with the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, in tow, Seven priests would then blow trumpets as they marched. On the seventh day, the Israelites marched around the walls seven times, and then when the trumpets are blown, the walls of the unholy city fall. Today, as we read about the seven trumpets of Revelation, we're going to see similar results. What we'll spend our time looking at is the destruction from the trumpets, the reason for the trumpets, and finally, the outcome of the trumpets, okay? So first, what kinds of destruction come from the trumpets? Charles Taylor, great Canadian philosopher, has done much work on modern secular thought. One of the things he notes about modern people of the Western world in particular is that they are, quote, in his words, I think he sort of coined this term to describe modern Westerners, disenchanted. Disenchanted. What does that mean? Well, when we contrast, say, the ancient pre-modern world, maybe pre-enlightenment time, with our world today, there's a fundamental difference in how people view just about everything in life. For most of human history, and still in many parts of the world today, everything was infused, indeed sort of vibrated with spirituality. Everything. So the gods, or God, was seen as intimately involved with every sphere of life for most of human history. 
So you prayed for rain and then you offered sacrifices to the gods or gods or God to hope in hopes that it would bring growth to your crops. If a child died, it was assumed that this must mean that the gods or God was displeased in some way with you. When lightning and thunder came upon your village, you probably thought it was the god or the gods revealing their power to you. This is what Taylor, this philosopher, refers to as a world full of enchantment. A world full of spiritual activity. However, Taylor says that basically what's happened ever since the Enlightenment with our scientific and technological breakthroughs is that now we instinctively look for naturalistic explanations for every single thing we encounter in life. He goes so far to say that, that even those of us who, of course, view ourselves as spiritual people, religious people, devout people, whatever you want to say, are so used to breathing that air of disenchantment that we, too, instinctively look for natural, uh, naturalistic explanations. That's what he refers to as disenchantment. Why on earth am I covering that for you? Well, here's why. As we look at the events that we're just about to read, as they're described for us, what we'll see from our perspective today, at least at first, is what looks like a bunch of natural disasters. <clears throat> but what we have to try and do is put ourselves back in the minds of John's first century audience if we're going to feel the weight of the events that the trumpets record. We have to understand that we don't live merely in a natural, material world only. But in fact, do still live in a world brimming with supernatural and spiritual activity all the time around us. So with that said, let's pick up verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them, the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. We'll note quickly here a couple things. From a purely naturalistic perspective, what John seems to be describing to us is cataclysmic weather patterns with giant hail and lightning. But he doesn't merely say that it's hail and fire or hail and lightning. He also adds that there's blood in the mix. There's a reason for this. This harkens us back to the plagues in Egypt found in Exodus 19, where God not only sends destructive hail and lightning storms against his people's enemy in Egypt, but also turns their main source of water, the Nile, into blood, which makes it undrinkable. Thus, this, this plague brought about by the first trumpet is not merely a natural disaster, but also a supernatural disaster, using many of the things that we're used to experience in our daily lives. Let's move on. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. 
Now again, from a purely naturalistic point of view, this is the description of a great volcanic eruption. Like, say, the eruption of the supervolcano underneath Yellowstone Park, which some scientists say could spew ash for thousands of miles across the United States, burying surrounding states in up to three feet of ash, if actually erupted. And so the, we see this on Earth, this kind of thing happens. We, we know of eruptions of volcanoes that have caused great damage. You can go to Pompeii today and see the results still of what happened when a great volcano erupted there. Indeed, that would have been in the minds of the readers of this text. They would have been able to picture it. And yet we, we see the supernatural element of it all also because it is said to be, quote, thrown into the sea. So it's not merely just natural sort of mechanistic forces happening, but, but there's a supernatural element to this. And what results is death to a third of living creatures in the sea, which would cause tremendous havoc to the world economy as various sea traffic routes would be disrupted, a third of the ships would be destroyed, it says. Moving on, verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Now the fresh water of the earth, because of this, is contaminated and undrinkable, and a third of the world's water supply this would, of course, would result in tremendous famine. What, what could this be? Well, from the sound, it sounds like a meteor. Something that has this blaze like a torch. You know, a meteor hits the planet. It could do great damage to the planet, indeed. But we're not done. The fourth angel blew his trumpet. And a third of the sun was struck. And a third of the moon and a third of the stars. So a third of the light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, from a strictly literal reading of this text in Revelation about things that will happen before the end, we, we might be tempted to just say, oh, okay, well, I mean, if we're just going to read it really literally, it says a third of the sun was struck. Does that mean, like, literally, like a, like a third of the pies, you know, gone? Third of the moon, gone? I, I, don't, I don't think that's what it means. I, I think when we read it in context with, with a world that has been struck by volcanic eruption and meteors, as we've seen in the other trumpets, it's not far-fetched to see this as describing the ash and smoke that covers the earth so much that it makes it seem as if a third of the stars have gone dark and that the days are indeed a third shorter. Indeed, in 536 A.D., a year that some historians say was the worst year to ever live on the planet. How would you like that as your reputation? <laughs> that year, 536 A.D., there was a cataclysmic volcano that erupted in Iceland that led to such a dense fog that for 18 months there was no light in Europe. None and in parts of the Middle East, and in parts of Asia. 18 months! 
This led to significant temperature drops. It actually snowed that year in the summer in China. There was massive crop failure, mass starvation, and that ushered in the bubonic plague in 541 that led to, some scholars estimate, one-third to one-half of the population of the Roman Empire perishing. Now think about it from the Christian's perspective at the time that may have had exposure to what the book of Revelation says here. When all of a sudden they can't see the sun, the moon, they can't see anything, it's dark all the time, there's just this tremendous fog, crops are failing, everything is going topsy-turvy, do you think just maybe they thought, oh my gosh, it's happening, the end is nigh. They most certainly did. We know, as a matter of fact, from the writings of various church fathers at the time that they were absolutely preparing, like, it has to be now. I can't see my hand from my face. And the air stinks, and it's terrible. But as I've stated here before, this is why we don't read the events that Revelation records for us as necessarily only describing what will happen at the end. So, so the authors of, say, Left Behind will tell you that that's exactly what this is. This is describing everything. It's future, it's future, it's future. But, but in reality, the things that are mentioned here are things that have happened throughout all of history. Yes, there might be a greater cataclysmic event uh, like these things at the end, that's possible, and maybe Revelation is telling us that it could very well be, and that's totally fair. But it's also been happening all throughout history. Well, like I said, I really, I would really like to just sort of stop it here and be like, okay, but here's the good news, folks. I've got good news, and it's going to be all unicorns and rainbows from here on out. But not yet. I'm sorry. Matter of fact, it's going to get worse. Verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Ah, great. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. The star, by the way, here is almost certainly an illusion or a nickname for the character that we refer to as the devil. The reason why we know this or we, we believe this pretty strongly is because this is the way Isaiah 14 reports his fall from the heavenly places. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power. And remember the plague of locusts in the Exodus story. John's paralleling a lot of this stuff. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. 
And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as their king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, again, who we would think of as Satan. His name is in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, the two woes are still to come. What John reports seeing at this point is, I mean, it's just sort of horrifying. It's these evil, demonic hordes that, are, that have been restrained that are now being allowed to come out and torment. Notice not those, not Christians, but those who refused. So even their own side, which is the way the devil works, by the way. Again, to the readers in the first century, this picture is not new to them. We have Jewish apocalyptic writings from that time period that talk of the bad angels or demons that had followed Satan in his rebellion against the throne of God being restrained until one last push at the end. Verse 13, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. What John reports about the sixth trumpet blast is once again something that would have been heavy on the minds of the first century Roman audience. From a purely natural perspective, they were terrified of the Parthian army who were just to the east of them, in fact, next to the Euphrates River, which is mentioned in this passage. But from a supernatural perspective, John reports that what is coming is far worse than any relatively small army in the Parthian crew. No, John reports an army of these millions of demonic beings So what do we learn about these events? I mean, I, you know, we could spend hours and hours going over all the symbolic, uh, all the symbolism of all the different parts of these locusts and, and of these horsemen and things, but I, I think you get the picture. I mean, it's just 
It's not pleasant. It's terrible. I think if there's anything we have to do, we have to take a step back and we have to, we have to learn to do, as John does here in our passage, to not merely take the events around us at face value as merely natural events. Instead, we must remember in our lives that what's going on behind the scenes is much more spiritually vibrant. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Look, folks, it's not an accident that the, the beginning of this whole thing starts with prayers of the people. It is the prayers of the people that you fight the battle against the enemy and all that he might bring against this world. We are once again reminded that in the events of this world, God is, yes, in the midst and present and thankfully able to defeat all that is raised against him. And yet the destruction that is recorded in this passage is not for destruction's sake only. There are reasons for these things coming upon the world. What is the reason for the trumpet? Well, if we go back to verses 3 through 5, I won't make you go through all the slides again, but we see part of the reason that things take place is because the prayers of the saints, in other words, as we've seen before, the saints suffering, suffering through persecution are crying out to God to renew everything. They're crying out to God to bring people to repentance and faith in Him. Indeed, part of the reason that we are still here is because God is still in the business of bringing people to repentance. In fact, one of the reasons even disaster befalls us is to once again bring us back to him in this life. In a strange way, when calamity strikes, when hardship comes, it reminds us once again that we're part of something bigger and we begin to just maybe question the shaky foundations that we're prone to building our lives upon. I can't think of a, a more significant reference point where this kind of thing happened in this city and in my own experience than September 11, 2001. I'm old enough to remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when it happened. But what I remember in my home church in Southern California where I was sort of serving as a young adult group leader is the day and days after September 11th, receiving phone calls from many people that had been frankly indifferent to anything having to do with the faith, suddenly going, dude, can we, can we pray? Can, can we get together for Bible study or something? Can we just, I just, I, I'm totally freaked out right now. Does that mean that God brings these things purposely to hurt? No, I don't think that means that. I think God uses all things for his glory. I think God is able to use the worst that humanity can throw at each other and still find a way to bring glory to his name. And I saw it. As people tried to, they had their whole foundation shaken up. It was like, well, Maybe, maybe the God I've been ignoring is real and I need to 
to reach out to him. I, I mean, I've told you about what happened to my wife. My wife, at the time we were not together, it was that event that shook her and brought her back to repentance and faith. So there is a sense in which God uses this in order to bring people to the end of themselves and to see their need for him. Sadly, this doesn't always happen. Because by the time we get to chapter, in the, the end of chapter 9, we read these words. After all of this calamity, after facing all of this destruction, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. But to those who do repent even still, even now, to those who do look to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what they walk in here with or walk out of here with, there is in fact a glorious outcome to all of this when we get to the seventh trumpet. After history sees all this chaos and all this tragedy and all these disasters and, and all of this death, and, we've, and, it, and it is, this is what history has looked like as a result of mankind's fall into their, themselves and into sin, we see the results of this in our world today. Even still, what will the outcome be when we finally, finally get to the seventh trumpet? If you go to Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, it says this, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Do you hear that? The last thing, who is God destroying? God is destroying the destroyers of the earth. Who is God's judging? God is judging those who unrepentantly continue to destroy each other. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen with his temple. And there were flashes of lightnings and rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. In other words, folks, the end is not the chaos and the destruction. The end is indeed the answer to the prayers of the saints found at the very beginning of the chapter, chapter 8. That God, working in the midst of a fallen world with all of its destruction, somehow will be able to do what J.R.R. Tolkien says 
He'll be able to make all the sad things come untrue. And so that is the hope we lean on in the midst of our own tribulations and our own trials in life when things get hard and we don't have the answers and we don't feel like we can stand. We lean on the hope that God is able somehow through this to bring us through it, to bring us to the other side, and to bring a new world in its place. Father, I pray that you would give us confidence now as we look around the world today, we see many of the same things that are recorded for us in our text tonight. People still suffer from natural disasters and still suffer from wars and rumors of wars and the things that are reported in Revelation. Whether those things increase or not, Lord God, I pray that you would give us faith to believe that what Jesus has accomplished for us is enough for us to walk with confidence into a world, no matter what the world has going through it at the time. To walk into a world knowing that this is not our home, as it is right now, but it one day will be our home as you want it to be. And so now, Father, we pray the prayer our Savior gave us in humble dependence, saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.